Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel San, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grape. Well, hello, folks. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 133. And today's uh, episode is called Why I Don't Trust the Authority of Science. And I think that's really important. We hear a lot of people shrieking and screaming, trust the science, you know, this is science, you know, science says, science is settled, all, all different versions of this. Well, those people are a problem, but they're really more a symptom. The bigger problem comes from what is supposed to be science itself, in my opinion, and it is in science. It is in science. I trust the scientific method to be the best logical set of rules that we have to determine the reality behind, behind a situation while ruling out the mystical and supernatural, etc., unless that force itself is something that can be measured. So I trust the scientific process. But I do not trust science, the entity. Science, the authority. And anyone that perpetrates perpetuates the idea that science is an entity to be trusted does not understand science at all even a tiny little bit you know i mean it, it, that's just a reality guys that the entire scientific process and, and it's actually bigger than this but just breaking it down to kind of what they teach you in like fifth grade because we could we should at least hold our vaulted scientists that are supposed to be authority figures today to the standard that we learn when we're in fifth grade. Now, don't you guys think that's fair? That we at least say, you know, like minimum, you guys got to get to like fifth grade scientific understanding of what science is if you're going to call yourself a scientist. You can go higher. But the basic premise is that we, that we look at a thing that we don't fully understand. We take all the information that we have, And then we form a hypothesis. I believe that this is why, or this is the reason, or this is the problem, or whatever it is. This is what's going on here. And I base it on these things. That's called a hypothesis. It's an educated guess. And then we create an experiment where we have a controlled group and an experimental group. I know this is really rudimentary, but it's kind of, it seems like people don't understand this anymore. And then we measure the results of those two sides of a thing. And then we draw a conclusion from that, and we present our findings to others. And even if our findings are what we expected or what we didn't expect, if there's a legitimate question that this is attempting to answer, other scientists then do what's called a peer review. A peer review is not what they call it today, right? They, this is where you have other scientists that attempt to replicate your results, Not people that look at whether or not you entered your shit right in your journal. And then when something gets to the point where not only has it been done, has it been tested, and has a result come out of it, and a conclusion been drawn due to that result, it's been replicated by multiple different individuals proving that it wasn't a fluke. 
Then we move from the world of hypothesis, educated guess, to theory. This is the best guess we have at the time. That's what a theory actually is. Very few things make the final journey to where they're codified as scientific law. In other words, it is not just accepted. It is 99.9999999 the case that this thing is what we say it is. And that's a very difficult journey uh, for a concept to make in the world of science, especially anything that we don't know yet, that we didn't know a couple decades ago, etc. Like the things that you can actually kind of codify into law are fairly self-evident to the point that once we developed this process, they kind of came out really quick. And that that's something that I think, again, I know that's really rudimentary. A lot of you are like, duh, Jack, I know all this. But we have to start there. Now, the thing is, you probably thought when you saw the title of what we were going to talk about today that I was going to talk about the jab or medications for uh, the disease that I shall not name to not get my uh, video demonetized on YouTube today. But I'm not. And Or that I was going to talk about uh, some of the big shrieking, the science is settled subjects. I want to go much more broad than this because I think this problem is something that until the recent events, you know, I didn't realize how big of a problem it was. I knew there were certain areas that were largely driven by money, where science was saying whatever the money behind it wanted the science to say. That if you were at an ag school and you were testing what the best way to grow crops was, and Monsanto, Conagra, Bear, etc. was funding your university, well, you were going to come out with results that were at least favorable to them. But I really believed that the individual scientist cared about the truth. I really believed that the scientific process was actually in place, that it was being manipulated, not that it had gone away. I think largely it's gone away. And it's not just the people with the money doing it. And I'm going to give you uh, five examples here in a moment. And I'll think it'd make it abundantly clear how widespread this is and then why... It is such that the money can use the concept to manipulate a result. In other words, what I'm saying is there's a predisposition within science itself as a bureaucracy. That Yes, money pushes the result they want out of it, but if you want to push a result through a system, then you have to understand the system and its flaws. And then you can leverage the flaws to get what you want. If you have a perfect system that works perfectly and does what it's supposed to do, then you won't really be able to get a result out of it other than the truthful result. You have to have a flawed system inherent to be able to buy influence in that system. If scientists actually practiced the basic fifth grade scientific method, or the far more advanced method you should have learned in high school, right? if we actually did this with, with kind of a feedback loop and a recheck, etc., if we did this, then money could come in like crazy If the system was not flawed, you'd not get Monsanto buying a result. You'd not get big pharmaceutical companies being able to produce science that supposedly says if you're taking a painkiller medication but you actually have pain, you can't get addicted, which is exactly how they sold the opioid epidemic into America. That was, that was the story that was told by science. You can't – you see what I'm saying? Now, let, let's talk about this in some – places that don't get talked about a lot, where this system of dogmatic, ingrained 
belief within the science community itself is the flaw that's exploited by the money. And this is what Jeffrey Pornell, God rest his soul, called the iron law of bureaucracy. That within any organization, you'll have people that are actually concerned about doing what the organization is supposed to do, and people concerned about the organization itself. And those concerned about the organization itself will be the bureaucracy. They'll be the bureaucrats. They'll be the administrators. They'll be the, in the words of uh, Bill Mullison, they'll be the politicians and the priests. And that because you have that group of people at the core of the organization, eventually all the people concerned about the mission will end up controlled by the small number of people in the administrative position because they control promotions, rules, policies, procedures. And eventually, the people on the outskirts, the, the ranked file, as they're often called in law enforcement, end up simply complying with the central authority because it's the only way to get advanced and keep your job. And that's exactly what's happened with science. And here's examples of it. That at least four of the five are just ones we don't really think about a lot. The first one is, in the world of ecology, natives are good. Introduced species are bad. So much so that this is how you know it's dogma. If you buck that at all, if you say anything at all to the counter, you get violently, and I mean verbally violently, violently attacked. People that have come out, Fred Pierce uh, wrote a book called The New Wild, and it, it breaks this down really well. I just learned about it from Jeff Lawton over the weekend, and I am going to, I, I'm already like halfway through. It's an amazing read, link to it in the video notes here uh, for you guys, and It, it really, I'm not going to go deep into each one of these issues. I just want to kind of give you like a service level. It, it, it clearly explains how like all these catastrophic examples of, well, rats got on this island and ate all the birds that couldn't fly. Um, these are all in very brittle systems. And it doesn't take into account in a larger ecosystem the non-brittle nature and how strength in diversity actually is a thing in nature. And the more diverse an ecosystem, the more stable an ecosystem. And it doesn't look at, successes even on islands, like Ascension Island, where um, basically plants from all over the world were planted, and this island was pretty much a barren rock, 99% of it, and now it has a beautiful cloud forest on it with all these plants that did not co-evolve. But if you bring that up, you're, you're violently attacked within science itself, and certainly by the onlookers that go trust the science, because everybody knows that inherently an introduced species must be bad, despite the fact you can point to hundreds of introduced species in the United States that become naturalized and fit in. And then, as Jeff put it in the video I was watching him talk about this in, well, you know, so animals get onto a log or seeds get onto a log and float down a river. They float out to sea. They drift in the air. They, they travel on the feet of a bird. Are you going to outlaw all of that? Where, where, do we, where do we stop? Like, so people doing it is wrong, but nature doing it's okay. Does that actually make sense? And maybe in some places it does, maybe it doesn't, but this absolute hard line, this dogmatic belief inherently an introduced species must be bad, has tons of data that shows that that's not true. And yet, if you say it, you're attacked. Here's another one. The concept of human history itself. Anybody that's listened to the Joe Rogan interviews with Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson knows how ridiculous the dogmatic belief is that human history, we completely understand it, There's no need to look past 12,000 years in the past for civilization. There were no civilizations any older than that. That, that's a, that is the, the dogma in science to the point where we've actually found civilizations under the ocean. And everybody wants to start screaming that you're talking about a Star Trek Atlantis theory or something. No, we're just saying there's people. They lived here in this civilization. 
And the ocean existing where the civilization is now, that ocean wasn't there, or that ocean was already there 12,000 years ago. Ergo, nobody builds a civilization at the bottom of the ocean. Ergo, this civilization had to exist prior to this timeline where you say none exist. And the archaeologists who should be digging into this, who should be intrigued by this, say there's no reason to explore those ruins under the ocean because we know they won't teach us anything. That is, is inherently asinine. Um, next would be the belief that the only way to protect the environment is to exclude people from it. I just listened to a great podcast uh, done a while ago with Neil Spackman. Neil Spackman did an incredible project uh, over in Saudi Arabia working with the Bedouins, and now he's kind of come back from there. It's years later. He's learned a ton. He's on his own. He went to business skill school, and he's now set up a company, and they are planting something like, I don't know the, the number of acres, but it's roughly the size of Manhattan where the project is, and include, that includes waterways in Mexico where they're planting mangroves to enhance the number of species of fish and actually clean water that's being used for aquaculture now that's going into the oceans that's polluting them and re you know kind of kick that back into a rebound loop and expand this and by planting like I think they want to plant something like nine million mangroves. Right? And 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 fishing in Florida, I can tell you what mangroves do for an ecosystem. It is incredible what mangroves do for an ecosystem. And so he wants to do this, and then you can employ people to fish. And instead of so, instead of the problem being there's there's too much fishing, the problem is we've overfished certain areas, and what we need are more fish, not less fishing. Since humans eat fish, and fish are a natural resource, we should be cultivating wild fish in wild ecosystems as a positive influence on them, using actual science to do that. But, of course, the, the, the accepted meme in ecology today, in environmentalism, is wherever humans go, there must be damage. And we have to make a, a false dichotomy again, that either you, you see the human's needs or you see the earth's needs, and one must inherently harm the other. This is dogmatic throughout all areas of environmentalism and science today, not just you know climate change or whatever. And, and it, 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 it's, it's a sickening thing. And you can't possibly assert that you're being scientific if you limit yourself to that dogmatic belief system. Here's another one. The concept that all illness is best treated with drugs. I mean, science will pay homage to things like, well, you know, when we found out what scurvy was, we gave people vitamin C and that terrible thing went away. Um, and there's some nutritional deficiencies. But since everybody you know, eats ramen noodles today and that has all the goodness you need in it, don't worry about it anymore. And if you're sick in any way, shape, or form... You know, we might even tacitly mention, you know, diet and exercise or whatever. But really, you get sick, you get a drug. And this drives everything in medicine today. It's, and it's, it's, it's ridiculous because if there was a disease, I don't know, some disease that maybe recently became a big thing for people, and you realize that not just on age, but across the board, the majority of people didn't really do poorly with it, and then some group of people did poorly but were kind of okay, and then it hit some people really, really hard and killed them. If you were being scientific, the first thing you would say, well, yeah, it, it hits people that are 88 years old with three comorbidities harder. We, we, that's obvious. But if we have some 40-year-olds that are hit real hard by this illness, whatever it might be, I don't know, and uh, most 40-year-olds aren't, 
Wouldn't you think it'd be a good idea to just say, well, why don't we do a full nutritional blood panel? Look at vitamin D levels, look at every, you know, every vitamin and mineral, and see, is there? There's no guarantee there will be, right? But wouldn't you say, wouldn't it make sense to see if there is some sort of glaring, obvious thing, just using an empirical data and pulling the data and, and, and data raking it, and saying, hey, look, you know, Shit, if all these people are deficient in vitamin D that get really sick, or the vast majority are, maybe we should look at that. Or if it's a selenium deficiency or a vitamin C, whatever it is. See, science seeks the truth. It doesn't seek to confirm a, a methodology. It doesn't seek to confirm a dogma. It seeks the truth. Next up would be... Um, the myopic view on climate change. This is the one everybody thinks you're talking about when you go into this world. But I'm going to put it a little bit differently than maybe you've ever heard it before. Let's say that people like me that say, sure, it's probably the case that CO2 in the atmosphere has at least some effect on global temperatures. And 1800s you know, science teaches us that there's a limit to what that can be. We've exceeded that limit, and it's not worth worrying about. Let's say I'm wrong. Let's say I'm 100% wrong. And let's say the IEEE and the, the consensus, consensus of science is correct and that CO2 is as big a problem as they say it is. Again, I don't believe this, but let's say that it is. The myopic view, that this is the thing we must concern ourselves with, that every single time we're looking for funding, it has to be about CO2. It has to be about this one thing. That myopic view takes something as dynamic as the, as the global ecosystem. All the climate types, all the places, all the weather patterns, all the animals, all of the actions of human beings outside of burning fossil fuels. It takes all of it and it shoves it to the side and says, we know it's there, but it, it's not really that important. The only thing that matters is that your car gets more miles to the gallon or that you put solar panels on your roof or that you somehow sequester carbon. Now, I'm all for sequestering carbon. In fact, if you want to build healthy ecosystems, if you want to build really great pasture and civopasture and savanna systems, if you want to build healthy mangrove systems, like I was talking about with Neil Spackman earlier, then you must sequester carbon. That carbon cycle is real. Those, th th those ecosystems need that carbon in soil for it to do its job for those ecosystems to thrive. But maybe we should be talking about making those ecosystems thrive? Maybe we should be asking a question when somebody says something like, but look at all this catastrophic shit that happened because rats got on this island. What did humans do to that island before the rats got there? Isn't that, like, see, all of these things, they all go together. You have to be asking questions from every angle. And when we settle in on a single thing, it is absolutely the case that we're going to be at least partially wrong. And then I'll... I'll bring it to the concept that's in the thumbnail today. And let me pull this up real quick just so that I can make sure that I say it correctly, this quote, uh, by Jerry A. Korn. Uh, Religion is based on dogma and belief, whereas science is based on doubt and questioning. And you see, that's, that's my issue here. We have entered a world where we cannot have science. The way science has always been defended over beliefs, over articles of faith, is that since we, we have a faith and the book says a thing or a tradition says a thing, we are then required as an adherent to that faith to say, I believe, to profess belief in this thing and to not question it. Maybe question how, but not question that.
And science came along and said, this is not a way to make decisions that will impact all of humanity. This is not a way to decide whether or not to treat an illness a certain way. This is not a way to determine whether or not we should cut a tree down or not. This is not a way to figure out how to navigate to a place. Like the, the, that, That's fine. That's the realm of religion. In the world of science, we will always question everything, and we will always doubt everything. And only when a thing that we question and doubt has enough evidence to support it, will we take it on as being factual. And where do we live today? We live in a world today where science is an authority akin to religion. And that you're wrong. You're a heretic for questioning science. And at that point, it's no longer science. And again, I had this misguided belief, this truly misguided belief, that, oh, it was here and it was here. It was in these places, these hot-button subjects that we've kind of dodged around today. You know, it's in big ag, it's in big pharma, it's in, you know, climate change, right, AGW. But surely, the vast majority of scientists that are out actually doing science are not doing this. That this is just where the hooks of big business got in. In a word, depending on how you spell it, it could be one word or two, bullshit. Bullshit. It's literally everywhere. And I figured out why. It does go back to that iron law bureaucracy, and it goes back to the more you have vested in a thing, the more you'll defend the thing, even if the thing is wrong. So you think about how the scientific community works today, as opposed to how it's supposed to work. The way it should work is anybody with an idea should be brought forward and say, present your findings, and let's figure this out. And I, even if I think you're wrong, let me examine what you've done. Let's, let's tear it apart. Let's not make this about opinion. Let's make this about data. That's how it's supposed to work, but it doesn't. What happens is a generation of scientists, as they get old enough to take over the positions of leadership, either adopt an old paradigm that's already existed, or they decide to finally move forward with a little bit of progress and take on a new one. And then they control everything. It's beyond just the administrators. It's the senior professors. It's the people that give out the grants. It's all of these people adopt this paradigm at about the same age cohort of about a 20-year gap in age at the point where they're at the peak of their authority. And it takes until the very last of them kind of ebb out of the system for that next group to take over and be able to determine whether or not there's going to be a new paradigm or not. And the older that person in that cohort of age group gets, and the longer they've been there, the more times they've signed off on a paper that says a thing, the more times they've stood in front of a lecture hall and claimed that they knew a thing that we don't know, that we just think. And because of that, they become vested in that story, vested in that narrative, vested, dare I say, in that belief system rather than a knowledge system. And they feel compelled to defend it. And then anybody that brings up anything that says this might be wrong is a threat to the order of science. It's a threat to the authority of science. It's a threat to something that should not exist within science. Science should not be an authority, and science should not have authorities. Recognized experts are not authorities. They're recognized experts. Recognized experts have been wrong often. And then you hear people when they say, well, I, we believe this now, or we believe that now. They'll say, it's okay that I changed my position, right? We know somebody who said that recently, because the science changed, so I changed my position based on the science. 
Well, wait a minute. If science changes as we learn more, then why is it wrong to question science that you say is settled? You see how it doesn't make any sense? And this is why I do not trust science as an authority. Because it's not an authority. It is a process. And anybody that says otherwise doesn't know the square root of F all about science. Well, hi folks. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 134. Today we are talking about the future of media. And, and I want to start out with something uh, that I don't usually point out uh, heavily in these episodes. I want to start out talking to you guys about the, the thumbnail in the video, if you're watching the video or if, you, if you, you found this shared online where you have a thumbnail that goes with it. And it's a quote uh, by James Redfield, who was an author of, of, of a series of novels that were designed to teach spiritual truths, but they were purely works of fiction uh, based on spiritual insights and based a lot on um, psychology as well, kind of out of the Jungian psychological world. And what if this is actually the quote I wanted to give you. I couldn't find the quote I wanted to give you, and I didn't have time to reread four books and figure out which one it was in. But the quote that I came up with for you guys is, history is not just the evolution of technology. It's the evolution of thought. And what I want to springboard from that with, guys, is that Redfield also, in one of his books, and I'm thinking it was the second book called The Tenth Insight, and links to all those books are down there in the uh, video notes below as well, um, stated that in the future that journalism would become the responsibility of citizen journalists and that people would be basically running around doing the job that journalists just refuse to do. That we'd all have these little cameras and we'd be out there taking videos and pictures and reporting our findings and making newsletters and sending them out and what have you. Now, the first book was released in 93, but it was written in the 80s. It took that long for him to figure out how to get it out into publication and my understanding is the second book, which is where I think this comes from, was well into being written by the time the first one was being written. And again, I think, and I'm paraphrasing the quote there, I don't know the exact verbiage, which is why I didn't use it for the thumbnail. But again, this idea that people would be out there and they would be looking around to find out what the truth is and reporting the truth and sharing it with people, and it would eventually become the, the, the place where people trusted each other more than they t trusted media. And, if, of course, he was speaking of, at the time, the big media being ABC, NBC, CBS. CNN was a thing by then. Fox News really wasn't a thing yet. Uh, so you were talking about kind of that core group, the first big cable network and all of the affiliates, and then the New York Times, or as I call them, the New York Slimes, you know, the, the Washington Times, etc., USA Today, all of that stuff. He was basically saying, these people aren't telling you the truth back in the early 90s. And the solution would be people that go out, find out the truth, and disseminate the truth, and earn trust in each other by speaking the truth. Because when we speak truth, it tends to be really obvious that that's what we're doing. I think even when people are wrong, you know, if I listen to someone explain to me that the earth is flat, I do know I'm, I'm dealing with a flaming lunatic. But I can tell that they're not bullshitting for clicks, that they actually believe me, they believe what they're saying, they believe their own bullshit. And I'd rather have somebody believing their own bullshit than someone knowingly lying to me. I can trust the person that believes their own bullshit. 
Because all I have to do then is filter through the bullshit to get the things that they actually know that are interesting or useful. Redfield said something else, though, and this was definitely in the first book. In the storyline, as our main character was discovering the insights, right, along the way, he discovers that we all exist in a way where we share information with each other naturally and that when two people kind of find each other and immediately have some sort of kindred relationship, like maybe it doesn't even last, but for this moment we need to talk, that that is, that is something energetic that we actually experience. And that as you go through life, if you think back, there's like countless times when a happenstance, a, a chance encounter with somebody led you to a point where they gave you some piece of information you needed to kind of complete the part of your life journey you were in right now. It could have been something really pedestrian and simple, like you were in a bar and happened to be talking to a buddy about losing your job, and a guy sitting next to you says, hey, well, what do you do? And he just so happens to be in the field you're in, and he just so happens to know somebody's looking for people right now. And that just so happened. Like, it's just a random coincidence. There's no energetic, universal truth behind driving that... See, I believe that there probably is. Now, I'm going to say, these books, there's a lot of woo-woo in them that go way out past Jack Spierko's logic zone, but they're really interesting, and they teach some really great truths. But in this interaction, Redfield said that what we would end up doing is instead of tithing to religious bodies that have become so huge and so massive that you don't really know what happens when you tithe to, let's say, the Catholic Church or something like Does it really do the things that you think you don't really know? And maybe you'll keep doing that. He's very open to all the world's religions, by the way. He's not anti-religion in any way. Um, but then maybe we would begin to also tithe to each other. That if I was really trying to find something and I came by you and I asked you for your help, or maybe just circumstances led to you giving me your help without me asking, that then you might give me a little bit of money, a couple bucks, Like, hey, man, thanks, here. And our instinct is, and this is why I always doubted this. I always doubted this. My instinct would be, and, and you guys can tell me yes or no uh, down there in, in the comment section, um, if someone offered you money in that situation, would your instinct be to turn it down, yes, or to take, well, that doesn't really work out real well. Would you take the money for a Y, or would you say no with an N? Just give me that in the comments, those of you that are watching. I think most of us would be like, dude, I don't need two bucks for telling you that to go make a left on Main Street, right? That's just not a thing that, that most people would, would feel a need to do, right? And uh, so I always doubted that. It didn't make a lot of sense to me that people would all of a sudden start handing money to each other because they gave them directions. Or like when I was... 21 years old, I had just gotten out of the Army. My car ran out of gas because I had just bought it, and I didn't know that the gas gauge didn't actually work. So, you know, even back then I was pretty preparedness-minded. I wouldn't have been driving around on a half tank of gas, but I didn't know I was driving around on a half tank of gas. So me and my buddy are hauling ass down uh, 81 in Pennsylvania, heading out to the river, and we're pretty far from an exit, and the car just shuts off. So I, I basically get on the shoulder, and I know there's an exit, so like you do the redneck coast, man. You just let that thing coast on the shoulder till you get as close to that damn exit as you can. And we ended up about a quarter mile from the exit, and then it was about a good one-mile hike down to a gas station off that exit. 
And as we're doing that, we, uh, we're walking down there, and we know we're not going to carry gas in our hands, and there's no guarantee they're going to have a gas can. We find, like, an old antifreeze jug on the side of the road. So we pick that up, and we walk down the gas station, and we get, you know, with probably half a gallon of gas. It's enough to come down with the car and fill the car up. And we're on our way back up this hill. And some dude in a really, I mean, especially for the time and the place, beautiful car. I don't remember what it was, but it was a luxury vehicle, like a Cadillac, but it wasn't a Cadillac. Pulls over, and when you see two dudes carrying a jug walking up to the highway, you know what happened. And he says, uh, do you guys need a lift, you know? Looks like you're out of gas. And we're like, yeah. And we're like, yeah, but we're... We're kind of the wrong way on the highway. We appreciate the ride. You can drop us off at the exit, and we'll walk to the car because you're going to have to go way down and come back. Right? He said, no, I'll do it. So we end up in the car with this guy, and uh, turns out his last name is Gears, and if you're not from where I'm from, that doesn't mean anything. You know, There's not a lot of people that are multimillionaires in, in, in the, the coal region of Pennsylvania, but the Gears family is one of them. This guy was you know, worth more than I am and, and most of my family is now, let alone at the time. And he was the one person that stopped. If I had said to you, hey, man, you know, I really appreciate you stopping when no one else would, and we didn't even ask you to, here's five bucks, I could just see that guy going, no, I, I don't want it. I don't, I don't think so. Um, somebody says, audio crapped out during your yes-no question. Which, if you were, this might be yes-no question for you guys in the, in the comments. If you were simply to offer simple help or advice to somebody on the street, like how to get somewhere or that there's a job offer down the road or something, and they said, here's five bucks, here's two bucks, would you tend to say no or yes? Yes or no in the, the comments there. Um, it was the question. And I think most people would say no, and that gets me to kind of the future of media and where I'm going with all this. So I couldn't see how that would work, and then I think about how things like today are. That this video is live streaming right now on Odyssey, for instance, and that over the next few days, while this video is kind of going through the front end of its cycle where it gets lots of views over there, you know, I'll make two or three bucks for it on Odyssey on average. Sometimes it's a little more, sometimes it's a little less. It's, it's less now that Odyssey's, you know, LBC tokens are in the, in the crapper. But the point is, I put this information out, and some of y'all value it enough that you tip me for it. You're like, I learned something today, and that has, and that's exactly what Redfield described happening. And if we couple it with what he said later, right, that, hey, you know, um, people are going to uh, go out and be citizen journalists, and they're going to share information, and they're going to tell each other things that the mainstream media will not. And if I compare the model of something like Odyssey, or float, and float's got float token coming, and it'll be not just for video streams and stuff, but you know, if somebody puts out some really great content, a little great microblog puts out, maybe it's even just a meme that makes you laugh on a day when you needed a fucking laugh, right? You just needed it, and as you know, put why in the comments if you've had ever had a day where you just needed a fucking laugh. And somebody did something and gave you a fucking laugh, and they had no idea you needed it. But you were like, you know what, I needed that. And I know it's happened with some of the stuff I put out, because people say, like, dude, I needed that today. Like, that kind of thing happens. So we have this, like, basic social interaction. But, you know, when you can micro-tip with cryptocurrency, when it's that easy, and when the person really can't say no, right, they can't, they don't feel, like, when I, when I go into my Odyssey account and I look and see, like, well, I earned 150 library tokens today, or 200, or 300, I don't feel bad about it. I don't feel like you didn't have to do that. I feel like... You freely decided 
to tender value for value that I tendered to you. It's not uncomfortable like when we're out in the street. And this leads to me to what I think the future of media is. Let's talk about what the past of media is. The past of media is I put all the information together that I think will get your attention. And then I might sell it to you through some sort of subscription, like a quarter a newspaper, or maybe you're part of a cable package or something like that. But my operation's so big and so huge, there's no way that that money really funds my operation, right? I, I don't even break even on that. I need a profit center. So the profit center, that way I can pay salaries to people and I can keep them in line and I can tell them, no, you can't report that, or yes, you are going to report this and you're going to go down there. And this is the angle of the story that you're going to take. And the journalist is compensated by the, the media uh, kind of empire not by the people that actually value the journalist. So there's this disconnect. There's a middleman between the journalist who's supposedly seeking the truth and the individual who wants to get the truth and the facts and, and opinion from the journalist that they respect. So we create this branding umbrella that we put our journalists under and we say, no, the credibility isn't Bill Klein or Bill Smith or Tom Jones. I'm making these names up. Don't go looking for them. The credibility is under the New York Slimes or the Washington Compost, right? That's the credibility, and then the journalist exists underneath there, and that means the journalist can be swapped out, fired, changed, anytime you want, but there's one problem. Since the, 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 the receiver of the information is not really the one paying for it to be developed and put together, we need someone else to do that. So we go out and we take you know, advertising dollars from every drug company that comes up with a new drug that's really an old drug that they changed one molecule in so they could repatent it and tell you to go ask your doctor about it even though you don't need it. And if you didn't need it, your doctor probably would have told you. And then when you end up with this massive amount of money funding the New York Slimes or CNN or what have you, and every again, every other commercial is a drug commercial, an insurance commercial, or whatever, all these corporations have agendas. And they don't want you talking about shit that doesn't match their agenda, whatever it may be. And all of these corporations are also funding politicians, and they've picked the ones that they want to win. They've picked their side of the dichotomy. Well, they don't want you reporting shit that's not friendly to the place that they're dumping billions of dollars into. So you don't end up with news. You don't end up with media. You end up with programming. So the future of media is exactly what Redfield said it would be. It's you and me. It's you and me, me as a content uh, creator in this instance, and you as a receiver, a recipient, a, com a customer of the content in this particular arrangement, right now, this minute while I'm speaking. But are not many of you also out there doing your own podcasts, your own videos, your own blogs? Some of you, you're not reporting you know, global world news, and good for you because there's enough of that shit. Some of you are just saying, hey, look, here's my homestead, how I'm running my homestead. It, 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 the value there that someone who's like, I've had enough of this shit, I want to go out and I want to at least provide some of my own needs, I want a simpler life, instead of having to go years of making simple, low-level, long-term, costly mistakes, seeing you make them, you record them, you document them, and you saying, here's how I fixed it, and being able to go, not only am I going to use that thing they fixed it with, I'm going to use this thing this other person fixed it with, and when I build mine, I'm going to think about the fact that I live in Texas, not Ohio. The value of that is extreme. This is the future of media. 
Not scripted shows on, you know, the Discovery Channel or the Learning Channel or whatever, or Nat Geo, where you're supposed to be learning about science, but they're pushing an agenda. No, the future of media is direct relationships, direct interactions. And it's coming. And people say there's censorship. Well, there's censorship, but there's not. And what I mean by that is, yes, YouTube, the Gulag, they might get pissed at me for this video, and they might say, we're going to take Jack Spirko's video down, and we're going to give him another strike, and one more strike, and you're out of here. And they can take my channel away. They can take my revenue stream away. They can throw me off YouTube. Okay? Does that stop me from speaking what I know to be true and putting it out there? And if you want to hear what I have to say, does it prevent you in any way from getting to it? And the answer is if you want it bad enough, and I want to say it bad enough, no. Right now, I'm on float. You could be on float watching this. You could be on Odyssey watching this. If somebody downloads, I, I got, I'm not on BitChute or Rumble or whatever the hell, or Gab TV or whatever, but if somebody wants to download my freaking videos and stick them on there, I don't give two shits. I just want more people to know about what I'm saying and what I'm teaching and come to me for more information. My distribution policy from the very beginning, if you go to the survivalpodcast.com and look on disclaimers and policies, under distribution policy, the policy is basically, please distribute. When I first started my podcast, you know what some people did? People actually used to use CDs back then. Yes, CDs. People would burn like 20 of the shows they thought were the best, and they would give them to people and say, listen to this guy. And, and the big media companies would have said, that's piracy. That's our content. We want to control it. And that's why they're dying. That's why they're dying. And they're dying. I mean, they're going tits up. Of course they are. Because if you want to control distribution of your content, and then you want to go viral, you don't understand what the hell viral means. By the way, you guys that are like posting stupid shit on social media, and then be like, let's make this go viral. If you want to guarantee that something will not get shared and will not go viral, put some shit like that on it. Stop that. Stop behaving like them. That's attempting to manipulate the flow of information rather than disseminating the information and allowing it to flow. And that's what these big tech platforms have done. Now they, they created this place where you could just disseminate information, and now they are throttling and controlling and distributing based on algorithms and agendas the flow. But float isn't. Float's like, hey, if you followed this dude, you must have wanted to see his shit. He put some shit up. Here it is. Go look at Float's rules. It's like one page of nine points. It's like nothing illegal, no doxing. It's like, it's like five or nine sentences. And they're like, Oh, they're barely sentences. Like, if you were told to write a sentence in, in English class in fourth grade and you turned that in, you might have got a couple red, red X's on them for only being phrases, not really deserving a period. That's how simple it is. And that's why it'll succeed. Odyssey. They're not going to take this video down. Honestly, it, it, it's, they can take down a video, but they really can't take it down. They can just remove it from listing, but they only do that because by law they have to like, and should, take down shit like child porn. They should take that down. And that's the only reason they've given themselves any way to do so, because they're required by law to take certain things down. Otherwise, do what you want, run what you brung. And anybody today can disseminate anything. And the future of media is going to be, we're going to create a second world. You know, the whole concept of everything being on conventional web servers, HTTPS, etc., we're going to be running everything simultaneously on the old web and IPFS, which is the future of the web, uncensorable. And what's going to come next? Because that's what I want you to think about in the end today. I can tell you what's going to happen. I can tell you how I think it might happen. 
But no matter how right I am about the what, and I've been doing this for 13 years where I put out predictions, and the what's I have been 90% on. The how's I've been like 50, maybe 40. Because technology evolves along with thought. And the how is easy. Or I'm sorry, the what is easy. Because I know what we all want. I know what people want. I know what there's a market for. So the market will fill that void. If something is wanted and it's not there, it will be filled. So the more big tech censors us, the better. Because the more people will move over to alternatives. Sooner or later, those of you that are holding out on Facebook, they're going to do something. They're going to say, do you have extremist thoughts? Would you like help? Does somebody you know have extremist thoughts? I know that created a shit ton of exodus. A lot of you guys that were holdouts, boom, you were out the effing door when that started. If not yet, they'll do something because they can't help themselves. They can't control themselves. Because as soon as you take control, the lure of power is way too strong. They can't stop it. It's like the ability to print money. Controlling information as is as powerful is the ability to print money. So you can expect these big expect these big platforms who built the ability to control information, to stop controlling information, and to pull back or to halt their progress in doing so, to slow down. And you can expect them to do it at about the same percentage of possibility. You can expect the federal government to stop printing money. Think that's going to happen? I don't think so. And the more they do, the more they build this other world for us the more opportunity to create, and the more entrepreneurs out there. You know? The more people, the more Kingsley Edwards um, we get in the world when they do this. Because the more opportunity there is for someone to, to go out and build a solution where there's a demand. The reason it was really hard to compete with Facebook and YouTube Six years ago? People think it's hard now. It's not hard now. It's easy now. It's, it's definitely easier. Six years ago, it was really hard because people were like, but why? You know, I would tell my horror stories about the shit that Google did, like destroying mommy bloggers because they couldn't fix their own algorithm. So they destroyed the value of, of mommy bloggers' blogs. The personal property of single mothers that had finally figured out a way to make a living through a platform called Paper Post. So I'm not surprised by anything. But when you told people that five, six years ago, like, ah, whatever. And then they came for people like Alex Jones, who's a tin hatter nut. I admit that. I've said that from the beginning. I got a lot of flack for saying that. But he is. He also tells a lot of truth. Just because someone's a tin hat nut doesn't mean they're always wrong. And so when they came for the Alex Joneses of the world, people went, ah, it's Alex Jones. And then the next thing you know, they're coming for your post where you're sharing an article from a mainstream news source because it doesn't match up with what King Zucky wants or King Dorsey wants or whatever. They can't help themselves. They won't stop. And let me tell you something. I say this at times and people don't believe it, I don't think. I don't want them to. I don't want them to stop. I want the, the people in mainstream media, and I now consider Facebook and Twitter and Google, right, to be mainstream media. They are mainstream media. They're not social media. We have to even stop using the term social media. All media is social. All of it is, especially today. Even like TV media, since they're using communication tools to communicate with their audience, even the shit on TV is social media. You're talking about it, right? It's social media. It's just media. And when they exercise that control, 
what they're doing is they're laying the tracks. They're laying the foundations of new media. You and me sharing information, and they can all go to absolute hell as their leg legacy platforms die. And with that, I'll catch up to you tomorrow with another episode of Miyagi Morning. All right, folks, so with that, welcome to Miyagi Morning's episode 135. And uh, this is an interesting one, and it was spurred by a variety of things. But I think the number one thing that makes me want to, uh, to talk about this is how many times I hear people in the media, and I'm talking about not just your typical mainstream media. I'm not just talking about you know, a Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or one of the financial versions thereof. I'm talking about times when, like, members of the media who generally don't talk about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, it's not their bag, they're daytime radio talking heads, um, they're sports radio people, like, they're people that it's not really their thing and they should leave it alone, but somehow or another Bitcoin comes up, and I hear this over and over and over again from people, not just in the media, but everywhere, but nothing backs Bitcoin. Nothing backs Bitcoin. If you understand how Bitcoin works, you realize how stupid this is. And it's not really stupid, it's ignorant. And there's two types of ignorance, right? And, and one is not, you know, let's call it sinful, and the other one is. There's simple ignorance. Simple ignorance means you just don't know a thing. And you either haven't had time to learn a thing, the people who have tried to teach it to you didn't know the thing, so you think to know, you know the thing and you don't. That's really bad, actually, for you. But it's not like you've done anything wrong. It's not like you've made a mistake. It's not like it's your fault. You just don't know a thing. Maybe you're not smart enough to know a thing, or it takes so much effort that it's not worth the effort to you to know a thing. And there's things I feel that way about. I, I don't know how to build a rocket to go to Mars. I'm ignorant of all the components and all the pieces that go into building that rocket. And in some ways it's willful, but it's more like decision-oriented. I don't have time for that. Like since I'm not going to be doing that, I'll let Elon Musk's people and NASA's people and whatever do that. Like I focus on the things in my realm. Willful ignorance is where something does impact you, you have formed an opinion on it, and you've refused information. And so when someone says Bitcoin is backed by nothing, we have to first divide, are they willfully ignorant or are they simply ignorant? And if you're simply ignorant, this video will cure for you the belief that Bitcoin's backed by nothing. If you're willfully ignorant to this, what you should do right now is turn off the podcast or the video that you're listening to or watching and not bother. Because if you are willfully ignorant to a thing, Nothing can be done to help you understand the thing. So if you'll open your mind, this will make perfect sense. I also said something in my teaser about this. That in a weird way, Bitcoin and the dollar were backed by the same thing. The same thing. Totally different mechanisms. This is where I'm not crazy, right? Totally different mechanisms. But the same actual thing. It's a single word. It's security. Now, what you have to understand, security... And volatility are different things, or security and stability are different things. So we're talking about value stability. So yes, Bitcoin fluctuates a lot more than the dollar, and the dollar is a lot more steady than Bitcoin. So if you want to hold money for uh, short-term value stability, you probably want to hold dollars. If you want to hold something, see, 
value stability is subjective to timeline. And if you wanted to hold something for long-term value stability, you would want to hold Bitcoin if you were making the right decision based on historical data. Because you would be better off. If you hold Bitcoin for two years, you are always better off than holding dollars. However, both have equal, I wouldn't say equal, similar value stability. And that we know the dollar will be worth less every year. That's actually value stability. It's a known. This is why companies like the dollar. This is why countries like the dollar. What people want in general is to be able to look out over a horizon over a certain timeline of where we are actually affecting things now for the future and have a known set of rules. It doesn't matter if they're good or bad. It's actually the case that in most instances, when you look at central planning, when you look at corporate planning, when you look at financial planning, people that actually do real financial planning, not fake financial liars, stability is the, or, or value stability is the thing that is best. Knowing, having defined rules, defined outcomes, knowing, yes, the dollar is going to be worth 3% less this quarter, but you know it. So now you can build based on a known versus an unknown. So the more stability generally in our short-term thinking, the better. This is why people prefer the dollar to Bitcoin right now, and I do for short-term money. I've talked about the three buckets before. You've got money you're going to spend this month, your cash flow, monthly cash flow. You've got short to mid-term savings And you got long-term investments. And the place that I'm going to hold most of my crypto of any kind is over here in the long-term bucket. I'm absolutely not going to hold Bitcoin over the next 30 days that I know I have to pay a bill with on day 31. Because it doesn't have short-term value stability. It has long-term value stability. But where does that come from? It comes from security. And here's what I mean how the dollar is actually backed by security. People would say, it's fiat. Well, you know. It's debt-backed. Yes, it is backed by debt, but it's also backed by security. As far as people are concerned, it's backed by a blue-water navy with nuclear capabilities. It's backed by the fact that the United States government, even no matter how screwed up it is, it's probably not going anywhere in the next quarter to next year to next decade, and they'll take it. It's backed by the fact that that debt will never be fully defaulted on because they can print more money For a time, I know some of you are going to like lose your minds. You, I'm talking about why people accept the dollar today as it is. Why governments, banks, institutions, individuals look to the dollar. It's, be, it's because it's secure. And when I say secure, I don't mean you can't lose. I mean, it is what it is, and we know what it is. And when you take a dollar, or you take a hundred dollars, or you take a thousand dollars, it's probably not counterfeit. It's probably not double spent, especially since most of the dollars in the world today are electronic. Only about 3% of dollars that exist have a paper bill behind them. 97% of the M3 money supply of United States dollars in the world is electronic only. So it's all, the people that are against electronic money, it already is electronic. When 97% of a currency is electronic only, then it's an electronic currency. But there is a security to the dollar that comes from the strength of the United States and the willingness of the government to accept it. I'm not saying it's a good security. I'm saying it, it is there, and it is in the minds of people. Bitcoin is backed by security a totally different way. What actually backs Bitcoin, when you look at 
the whole thing through the first, second, third principles of money is that there are thousands and millions of computers all over the world going brrrr, and we think of them as miners and they do a process we call mining and we think the most verifying tra transactions and they do that. But their actual purpose, their only true purpose is security of the Bitcoin network. And that is what backs Bitcoin, that security. That certainty that when I ask you, well, how much do you want for this car? Let's do a big purchase. And you say, I don't know, whatever. It's, just, let's imagine it's whatever one Bitcoin is today, 30-something thousand dollars. And I say, I will give you a Bitcoin. That when I send you that Bitcoin, you know that that Bitcoin is the Bitcoin that I've sent you. You know that it hasn't been control c and control v and copied over and over again. See, that would be a digital currency backed by nothing. One that you could just replicate, one that wasn't inherently limited to that, you know, to some hard cap, in the case of Bitcoin, 21 million units. Or that could be replicated. We could just expand it, inflate it, and make more, you know, like the ultimate shitcoin, which is the US dollar. Like that would be something that doesn't really have that confidence behind it. And all those computers that, that, that the, uh, the eco weenies are out there screaming are destroying planet Earth are certainly not. Um, I won't get into that today, but the, uh, the energy use argument for Bitcoin has been so thoroughly destroyed. If your ignorance to it is not willful, you can cure your ignorance today. You can go find the truth behind that argument really, really quickly. And you can actually find that it's Bitcoin and maybe some other cryptocurrencies that over time will actually lead to more and more and more development of what we call clean energy. Because there's tremendous opportunities created if you can create value from energy in places where you can make more energy than you can, you know, tend to justify the, the generation of, that you can recoup. So if you want me to build a, a new hospital and some other facilities in this sort of remote area where people need it, but we need a lot of power to do that, and I can't make enough money building a power generation plant, but if I can take all the excess energy, because I have to build the plant to, to go beyond the day-to-day -day needs, I have to build peaking into the plant. If I can take that extra energy and I can use it to provide security on the Bitcoin network, then I can justify the construction of you know something like a hydroelectric plant in a place where there's not enough people to generally do it. There's, there's a tremendous amount of things we can do there. But it all comes down to that. It comes down to security. And that's what, no matter what anybody tells you, that is exactly what backs Bitcoin. Now, we can get into, well, the so-called security behind the United States dollar is compromised by inflation. It's compromised by an untrustworthy government. It's, you, I understand that. But in the, what backs any currency is what is sufficient in the mind of those who use it to conduct commerce to have confidence enough in it to do so. And the reason people take the dollar, because where does this whole term backed by come from? Where do we get this idea that a currency would be backed by a thing? This, this terminology is a holdover from what we had in the United States, which was a gold standard, then a partial gold standard, then a half-assed gold standard, and then no gold standard. So at one time, when you got a $20 bill from the United States government, you could go down to a bank and you could say, I would like one ounce of gold. And they would say, hold on, sir. And they'd go back in the vault. And they'd come back out and they'd give you a $20 gold piece. One ounce of gold. 
And if you went in there with uh, 20 singles, $21 bills, you could get yourself 20, pe 20 pieces of silver or one piece of gold. Because we were actually in a bimetallic standard at one point in our history. That was, there's a whole different world there, the demonetization of silver and the crime of 1873. You can look at that if you want to. But the point is that backed by meant that there was gold behind it. Now, when we went over with FDR and they confiscated the gold and devalued the gold and devalued the money relating to the gold, it went to either, I believe, 33 to 1 or 35 to 1. It was somewhere in that range. And it stayed that way artificially all the way up until the 1970s as we began to completely decouple from the standard. That's where it comes from. It was backed by gold. And I know the gold bug's out there, and it still should be. Gold is terrible money. We've done that before. It really is. It's awful money. We have, we have a new world. We have a better standard. Um, but gold at least was a thing that had some level of supply control. Now, the thing about gold is we can make more gold above ground that's refined. I know that there's a certain amount in the earth, but gold is not completely non-inflationary. There is the and if you if gold goes way up in price, then gold miners will dig deeper, harder, and spend more money to get out of the ground. Well, when we have something like Bitcoin, we have that finite quantity ever, and it's a known. And what did we learn today about planning for the future and knowns that companies, governments, individuals like? To have knowns. The more I know, the more I can plan for accurately. And here's something to think about on this. Again, it's security that backs it. If I have to explain that again, you don't want to understand it. The fact that you know that what I'm sending you is what it's supposed to be. It can't be counterfeited. It can't be hacked. And no one can take it away from you unless you're dumb and you give them your private key. That's, I mean, Bitcoin is the most secure network humans ever built. It's a network that has been attempted to have been hacked more than any other network, and it's never successfully been hacked, and it never will be. That's, that's what backs it is that security. But think about this. Look back at what humans built when gold was the currency standard. And I mean buildings. I mean architecture. I mean roads. I mean all of it. The stuff we actually physically built. And look at today. Look at where we have, like, it's crumbling infrastructure, and we need 80 bazillion trillion dollars to fix it or whatever. This is because you're trying to use a weak money, a soft money, to build a hard asset. It doesn't work. If humans are ever going to kind of reorganize, and we're going to start building long-term things again, the only way you can do that, you have to put a hard money With it, and people think, well, you know, Bitcoin's not a hard money because unlike gold, you can't touch it. Bullshit. Bitcoin is harder money than gold because we can get more gold out of the ground. We can refine more gold. We can dig up more gold. When you have something that is absolutely hard capped, there shall not be under any circumstances, no matter which government, which king, which emperor, anybody in a space alien decrees, there shall be 40 million Bitcoin now so that there is more. There isn't. You can't because the security says you can't. Once you have that, then you have a hard, solid cap. And what you end up with is a deflationary economy where things become less expensive relative to a single unit of the currency over time. And that's what gold provided at a time when gold was the best thing we had to do it with. 
And that's where we built the great buildings. That's where we built like these projects where they built something and it took them two generations to finish it. And you could put that kind of effort into a thing because there was a knowing, because there was a knowledge, because there was an inherent security in the fact that this clown over here who pretends to be in charge can't just fart a bunch more out of his ass. And so that's an inflation thing versus a straight security thing. But in the end, that's what backs Bitcoin is security. With that, I'm going to end the podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with something non-crypto related. Well, hi folks, Jack Spirico here with Miyagi Mornings, episode 136. This is called, uh, Freedom is Not as Popular as You Think It Is. And this is going to be one of those episodes where, you know, I think sometimes people get really upset when you, when you talk like this. When you say things like this. Because it's not what they wish to hear. It's not what they wish to hear at all. Um, they want to hear we're winning. They want to hear it's somebody else's fault that we're not free. And most of all, they want a nice big giant, you know, injected huge syringe of hopium on an ongoing basis. And I think this can be very dangerous. And what caused this episode to, to be chosen for today is yesterday I just got tired of hearing kind of basically the hopium going everywhere about how we're going to take back the house and Trump's coming back or whatever. And so I made a very simple meme, and it was Ron Paul's picture. It's the uh, snapshot uh, or the thumbnail for this video. And it said, if y'all really wanted freedom, this man would have been in the White House. And what happened was, and I expected it, the apologists came. Well, they rigged the election, right? Um, they wouldn't let it happen, etc., agnosium. And the reality is this is much bigger than Ron Paul, but let's just, let's just come off from there, the 2008 and 2012 uh, attempt that Ron made for the presidency. He never did well enough to be a true contender for the nomination. I know that people that love Ron and love his work don't want that to be true. But he didn't. He didn't get enough votes. It is true in 2012, he came in second place in more places than any other single candidate. You know what you get for second place in, a, in, a, in, a, in an election? Nothing. A footnote in history. That's what you get. The reality was people were offered freedom and they rejected it. And you can't blame somebody else for that. And this has happened time and time again. Uh, a few years ago, South Dakota, who we all, you know, it's the bastion of freedom, rah, Christy Nome, yeah! And, you know, congratulations, South Dakota. You, you didn't completely go tyrannical on your people over a really bad cold. Great. Yay, South Dakota. I mean, I'm glad they did that. I'm glad that we have examples like South Dakota, Florida, to a lesser degree, unfortunately, Texas, to point to and say, hey, look, like, we didn't do all your crazy shit, and things worked out okay. I'm glad we have that. But in South Dakota, do you guys know that, I, and I covered this when it happened on my podcast, there was a ballot initiative, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's, as Nome calls it, the other Dakota. It's one of the Dakotas. I'm pretty sure it's South Dakota. There was a ballot initiative where the people of South Dakota could have voted away forever through um, a constitutional amendment, property tax in the state. The abolition of tax on your property was put on the ballot, and it was voted down. 
you want to tell me that liberty's really, really, really popular, that, that people really want liberty, that it's just, it's just them, whoever they are, rigging the system? Then explain to me the way that your fellow neighbors and friends and family just behaved for the last 18 months. Explain to me the way that many of them are still behaving. I want to put something else up on the screen for those of you who um, are watching the, the video right now. And it's a quote from the Bible. And it says, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought of as a child. But when I became a man, I, I put away childish things. I think that it's really dangerous. I, I think that it's absolutely really dangerous to believe something that's really important that's not true. Now, before I go on, I want to say something. Saying it's not as popular as you think it is, saying we're the minority, doesn't mean that we're one or a few. In a nation of 300 million plus people, and it's probably closer to 350 million people for all the people that don't get counted for various reasons that we'll leave out of the discussion today because they're still people. Um, three, 30 million is a shitload of people. It's also a minority. It's also a minority. In the system that we have, you'll never actually change things to the way you want them to be, which is less government and more freedom. If liberty was as, po as popular as we seem to think that it is, if, 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 if freedom, true freedom, was as popular as we seem to think that it is, the government would not have grown in size and power literally every year since its inception. We've never really had a, a full calendar year where at the end of the year there was less government than what we started with. Even at times when certain things have been repealed or more freedoms have been uh, opened up or no longer obstructed and certain things were taken away that were obstructing freedoms and those were good things, we still had a bigger government with more power at the end of the calendar year over and over and over again. And that's never changed. And the reason it is a childish way to think, to think that we are free and that we are the majority and we are the larger group and the only thing holding us back is some sort of rigging of the system, is where then do you place your faith and your hope and your effort in unrigging the system? That is, first of all, even if it was rigged, it is designed to be unfuckable. Okay, it, it has had so many redundancies in it to ensure that access to positions of power are controlled. Even if it was just a rigged system, well, you still wouldn't be able to untangle it. Not directly. So if you are in a room and there's a thing that looks like a door and you believe it's a door, but that door is actually stronger than the walls... But because you, your mind says it's a door, and you're trying to get out of this room, and no one's going to let you out, you have to get out for yourself. How stupid is it to go out the iron door instead of the wooden wall, just because it's a door? And to fail to even look down at your feet and notice that you're staring at a dirt floor? Wouldn't the order of attempt to escape, if you were using your brain, 
if you were thinking about the reality of the situation, if you were to put away the childish idea that the door is always the best option, and think like a man or a woman to say the first thing to try is to dig into the soft dirt on the floor and to see how deep the walls go. And then if the walls go down deep enough that we hit bedrock, let's say, then to attempt to destroy the wooden wall. And only at that point to try to knock down the door. Assuming, of course, you tried to open the door. Maybe it wasn't locked in the first place. Maybe the door was never locked. Maybe the solution would have been to ignore the door, to ignore the walls, to ignore everything, and, and notice the glaring open window on the back wall. That's how I feel many of us in the movement for liberty and freedom are behaving. No one's going to give you your fucking freedom. And your fellow man is not going to vote for you to have your fucking freedom. I can't be more direct, I can't be more blunt than that. It is never going to fucking happen. You know, people talk about people like, let's say, Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin is a dictator. Let me tell you what, you could bring down God's angels to oversee an election in Russia right now. And you could let anybody that you wanted to run against Vladimir Putin one-on-one, -on -one, head to head. You could give them a year to debate in Russian and English. You could make sure that every Russian everywhere heard all the debates. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to re-elect fucking Vladimir Putin. And do you know why? Because he's not a drunk like Boris Yeltsin was. And because he's stable, and because the country seems to make sense for them, even the things that they don't like. Because, in spite of the fact that we constantly say, those that will trade liberty for safety deserve neither, most people will trade liberty for safety. The human species has become domesticated, and if you are feral, good for you. But do not look at your fellow livestock and think that they're feral too, and that they just don't know it yet. Until they make the decision for themselves, they're domesticated. Not so long ago, I used to have a hell of a lot more ducks than I do now. I had over 150 birds on my property. About a dozen of them were mallards. These mallards were biologically no different than any other mallard. The ones that you go out and set up decoys for and, and call them in, and they come in and they set their wings and you shoot them and they fly away. The same mallards that fly from like Texas to Pennsylvania and back for migrations, they were the same birds. Not domesticated rowans that look like a mallard. These were mallards. And every day when I opened up their, their holding area, they'd take off in a flock. And they would fly so far you would think they're not coming back. So they almost disappeared. And they would make four or five giant circles around the property. And after they stretched their wings and got that out of their system, they'd come in on that last, last circle, set their wings as a group, and drop down and land in my backyard. There was physically nothing preventing those birds from saying, Hey, this jerk here, he thinks that we work for him. Let's leave. Let's get off the plantation. Let's go somewhere else. Let's, let's go out there and, 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 and find duck potatoes and creeks and live the way that we're supposed to live. There was nothing preventing those birds from doing that except their mind. They grew up here. They were fed here. They were provided water here. They had security here. They had a perimeter fence. They had some great big duck dogs instead of sheep dogs running around. They chased them once in a while. They didn't really like them. They're kind of like police officers. But you know what? 
We've noticed that none of the baddies come and get us because those dogs are not going to directly hurt us unless maybe we do something wrong. When we're acting up, when we're on the porch, they chase us off. They might even bite us a little bit. But overall, we do exactly what we're supposed to do, and we have this arrangement with the dogs and the fence and the warden, that Jack Jerk guy, and they never left. And eventually I ate them. I ate them. That's what happened to them. And they didn't have to get eaten. They could have left, but they didn't leave. Because they're domesticated, even though they're a wild species. Because by being born into captivity, and having the yoke of captivity feel gentle upon their little green heads, by being well-fed and secured and cared for, they didn't even realize that when they were in the air, freedom was in their grasp. All they had to do was take it. And there would have been the square root of fuck all I could have done about it. I never clipped their wings. Even if I had, eventually those feathers would have grown back. And once they grew back, if I hadn't caught them before they'd fully grown back, away they could have gone. And you'd say, well, they didn't know how to survive. They're a duck, dude. They know how to survive. They know how to survive. I guarantee you, if I put them in a cage somewhere and I dumped them off somewhere with sufficient natural resources, they'd survive a hell of a lot better than most of us would if we were dumped off in the wilderness despite survival training. They had everything they needed. They had the ability to use the Earth's magnetic field to navigate the same as their wild cousins did, but the domestication was so thorough. I was hatched into the hands of captivity, and therefore a captive I am. You can forgive them, though. They're ducks. Their head's about the size of a shooter marble, a big marble, whatever you call the big fat marble. So their brain is about, oh, the size of a fat-ass pea. They do not have the intellect. They do not have the prefrontal cortex that you do to understand, there's your freedom. Go fucking take it. In every single place that you see a single thread on the curtain between you and freedom, pull the fucking thread. Take every bit of freedom you can, every fucking day, because you're going to run out of fucking days to do it with. That's the truth. And do not think for a second the domesticated freaking cattle that moo around you think like you do, or are even capable of thinking like you do at this point. Do not think that you're not in the matrix with a bunch of people that will kill you to protect the matrix and be free anyway. And when it comes to how, I can't fucking tell you how. Because I cannot define freedom for you or any other person on this planet. I can tell you the conditions that would exist for you to be able to exercise the maximum amount of your freedom, which is everybody leaving you the fuck alone. But freedom is not that. That is the condition that allows for freedom. Plenty of people will be like those ducks. Every condition allowed them their freedom, and they chose captivity. Freedom is scary as shit. Freedom means you're on your own. Freedom means you have to fix your own problems. Freedom is being the lion on the Serengeti who might get killed by his son when his son wishes to take over the pride but preferring it to a cage and a steak and a roll of hamburger every night. The people around you are not lions. They're not wolves. 
that run in packs and see to each other. They're not even sheep. Sheep go feral way quicker than humans do. I can take you to places where plain old domestic sheep are as wild as the bighorn sheep in the western United States. Hunting them is hard. It's far harder than hunting deer. Because they have enough sense in their woolly little noggins to know, hey, look, we can get out. Let's get the fuck out of here. Let's go. No, humans have become like the cow. The cow that's been domesticated so long and so perfectly that even when it gets out, after it has a little bit of fun, what does it do? Most of the time they come back. That's your fellow mankind. Don't make excuses for the people around you choosing to be under the yoke of tyranny. Do not do that. Do not waste one second of your precious life making excuses for other people choosing tyranny. It is disgusting and it is a waste of the gift that you were given in your creation that made you a living being. You were not meant for change. You were not meant for confinement. You were not meant for someone else to tell you how to be and what to be and when to be that way. You were meant for freedom. When you take off, when you leave the duck farm, when you stretch your wings and you make those four circles to orient yourself, leave and don't come back. That should be in your heart, your soul, your spirit. It should be everything that moves you, that guides every decision you make. How can I create more liberty and freedom in my life and don't think you can give it to your children? All you can do is open the window and give them the opportunity to take it. You can't live their lives for them. But you can be a shining example of how to live. You're not going to fix this by bringing back the orange man. For God's sakes, the man that told you, the people scream freedom and then they want to elect a man who said, take their guns first and go worry about due process second. That guy, the guy that said, why don't we get some of these people like Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates on the phone and tell them we need to shut down the internet. That's who your bastion of freedom is? Are you freaking insane? And the answer is yes, you are. You chose once again the lesser of two evils instead of focusing on your life, your future, and your way forward. And I'm not picking on you guys, especially you guys that are listening to me on the live stream, because I know you. I know you're living this way. Just do me a favor. Stop looking over your shoulder to worry about who's following you. Leaders don't look back. They say, follow me, and they fucking go. Live your life that way. Every single day. With that, we've wrapped up Miyagi Mornings for the week. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series. And please remember, you can always support the Survival Podcast 
by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com or becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade.